Pink, who's one of my favourite artists, I think she's a wonderfully talented uh, uh, singer, released a song, you know, condemning George Bush, and I didn't much like that at the time either, but I didn't think it should be banned from radio. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We're recording this on the morning of Friday, the 29th of September. My name is Alice Workman and uh, joining me, as always, is Lane Sainty from Sydney. Lane, how are you doing? Alice, hello. I am very well on this morning in Sydney. Um, so how amazing is the thought that... Politicians all around Australia are being briefed on who Macklemore is and um, <laughs> but the song Thrift Shop <laughs> and Same Love. I just have this great picture of backbenchers being told by their media advisors. So, um, yeah, that's right. It was, uh, it was 99 cents. <laughs> that's how much it cost. Yeah, it was just 99 <laughs> there cents. There are some – yeah, the – I, I think every week I kind of say to myself, you know, this week cannot top the last in terms of extraordinarily stupid <laughs> scandals and, and outrages in this country. But I think Macklemore at the NRL Grand Final is is a really, really solid contender. It absolutely is. Anyway, <laughs> we will we will we will talk more about Macklemore in a minute. Um, but Lane, uh, what's on the show this week? On the show this week, I got to chat to Louisa Wall and I actually spoke to her when we were in Auckland last week covering the New Zealand election. So Louisa Wall is the woman who authored the same-sex marriage bill uh, that became law in New Zealand in 2013. And she's also an ex-Silver Fern and Black Fern. So she's played national netball and rugby league yeah, for right. New Zealand. So the Silver Ferns are the netballers and the Black Ferns are the women's rugby? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. So she's like an all-round overachiever. Professional, she is an absolute professional sport and politics. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and you know a big victory in in politics for um you know a, a Labor member. She has an electorate in in South Auckland, and she's kind of the one behind the same sex marriage law in New Zealand. So, mm, and she yeah, got a and very she got re- woman. she got reelected at the election on the weekend, didn't she? She did. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a lot to get through, so let's crack on to the fast five. It's a bit more of a conversational five this week, I think, because we uh, have so much to catch up on that we're going to take a little bit more time just to to get through everything. But um, we'll start off with number one, which is a New Zealand election update. So, Lane, the result was there was no result. This is the beauty no. of the mixed <laughs> member proportional system. Now, just remember, New Zealand has one House of Parliament with 120 seats in it, so the magic number is 61. National, uh, which is the the current government led by Bill English, got to 58. Labor led by Jacinda Ardern got to 45. The Greens got seven, so together Labor and the Greens have a coalition of 52. ACT got one seat, and New Zealand First, under leader uh, Winston Peters, will hold the balance of power with nine seats. So that means that New Zealand First will decide basically who becomes Prime Minister and who gets into government. Um, they've uh, indica- they indicated on the night, even before final results were in, that it, they weren't going to rush their they weren't going to rush their decision. So it could take another week or two before they decide. The writs aren't in for another week. Um, but current uh, New Zealand PM Bill English is pretty confident it'll be him because National got more votes than Labor. But I mean, you really you really can't tell because Winston Peters is an ex-National, but in in terms of describing him. 
in in an Australian politics sense. He's kind of like Bob Catter. He's a protectionist. He doesn't like the Greens. He doesn't like immigration. He's very kind of pro-New Zealand, like literally New Zealand first, and thinks that that both the main political parties represent the elite, and he represents the majority of New Zealanders and and how they feel. So um, it's it's quite it's going to be quite an interesting uh, an interesting decision when he announces what he's going to do. But I mean, really, we have to reflect on the fact that Jacinda Mania didn't quite work out. So National got 46% of the vote, Labor got 35.8%. So those neck and neck polls weren't quite on the money, but the polling about preferred PM, which is that Jacinda's personal popularity was quite high, is right. She does have a high popularity, but that didn't translate into actual votes for for Labor. And when we um, went to Louisa Wall's electorate, which is uh, South Auckland, we found a bunch of people that didn't actually even know who Jacinda Ardern was. So eight weeks turned out to be just not enough time to get that kind of youth quake movement going. Um, And you've got to remember, they also have non-compulsory voting. So a huge part of the uh, Jacinda movement was based on the fact that people had to enroll. Now, I spent election night at the Jacinda Ardern Labor election evening in Auckland. Lane, I have to say, her party was wild. Uh, it was definitely bigger than Bill Shorten's election night party that I went to last year. Um, there were heaps of young people yelling out, Yas Queen, and drinking Smirnoff Double Blacks, and there was a DJ dropping bangers in between the seat announcements on the televisions, and there was a smoke machine. I mean, the whole night was uh, was extraordinary, and there was media from all around the world there covering it. But I also want to say, New Zealand media is very weird. During the night while we were waiting for the results to roll in, they went. They were waiting outside Jacinda Ardern's house and they interviewed her partner, who's this guy called Clark Gayford, who's a, who's a celebrity in New Zealand because he hosts a fishing show. Um, and they were interviewing him out the front of her house while he had a tea towel over his shoulder because he went outside to feed the media <laughs> while she was inside wearing Ugg boots watching the TV. It was... It was <laughs> It was very weird. And there was just one final, I want to say one final thing about the New Zealand election, if you'll let me line. Yeah, of course. There is an Australian involvement that we haven't talked about yet. Victorian National Senator Bridget McKenzie is dating a New Zealand politician. He's the national MP for Hamilton East. His name is David Bennett. Um, he was the mm-hmm. Minister for Veterans Affairs and Food Safety, but might get reshuffled if National get back in. Um, so she was in New Zealand uh, for the election night running a sausage sizzle and his local electorate of Hamilton, um, which <laughs> oh, I wow. thought was quite funny because we, f- we found out when we were in New Zealand that they don't actually do democracy sausages. So that's pretty sad. But yeah, the two pollies met when they played each other in netball in 2015 and it was trans-Tasman love. It was it was Kiwi Aussie love lane. Alice, that is a beautiful story. Mm. And now she's over there running a sausage sizzle on election night. Oh, she's that probably, is, that she's, is amazing. She's, she's probably back now. Yeah. There's a lot yeah, going on well. in Australian politics. She's got to listen to Macklemore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> there is a lot going on in Australian politics, which leads us to number two in the Fast Five, Alice. And that is that the gas crisis has been averted because Malcolm Turnbull says it has been. Hooray! Hooray! You know, we're, we're good. Um, so... We all thought Australia was going to have a shortfall of gas next year and in 2019. And so the PM sat down with Santos and Origin and Shell, the gas companies, and they agreed to provide enough gas to ensure the domestic supply. So under the deal, the companies will also have to report to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, aka the ACCC, on their sales and offers and any rejections of bids to buy gas. But people living in New South Wales and Victoria will continue to pay more. 
So Victorians pay 11% premium on the cost of their gas bills or $2.23 more per gigajoule and New South Wales pay 5% more or $1.60 per gigajoule. And that's because of the cost of shipping it to these states from Queensland. And so the PM blames those states for the higher costs because they won't develop local sources of gas. In particular, he had a go at Victoria saying there's plenty of gas there, but the state's ban on conventional onshore gas exploration means they're not going to access it. And then yesterday, Gladys Berejiklian came out and said the New South Wales policy will not change despite the Prime Minister's criticism. It's going to keep its policy on on not opening areas of the state that are currently off limits for gas production. And Berejiklian said the government can say what it likes, but we need a national approach. So that's what's happening with the gas crisis. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Do you have any gas banter? <laughs> I don't. I don't have any I gas, don't have banter. Any gas banter um, Well, number three is um, we still have a few weeks before the High Court decides who should sashay away and who should chante you stay. Bit of a RuPaul's Drag Race humour for you there, Wayne. <laughs> Um, I've never seen RuPaul. <laughs> what? I know. I know. I, I don't understand this reference at all. I oh mean, I've seen gosh. the Sashay Away gif. I yeah. kind of get that maybe RuPaul is telling someone that they're no longer on the show. Like, I, I don't know. <sighs> you do. Watch, that's that's my you, guess. You watch Project Runway though, don't you? Um, oh, not, not religiously. Like, I've seen a few seasons. Right. I like it. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm a pretty. I'm a random TV watcher. I, right. I watch a lot of things. We'll get you on board next time you're in Canberra. Um, okay, yeah. so this okay. week, Attorney General George Brandis has said that he only thinks that Greens' Scott Ludlam and One Nation's Malcolm Roberts should be kicked out of the Senate. So just a reminder, we have seven politicians facing the High Court at the moment. We've got Scott Ludlam, Kiwi, uh, Malcolm Roberts, a Brit via India, Deputy PM Barnaby Joyce, Kiwi, Nationals Deputy Leader Fiona Nat, Brit, National Senator Matt Canavan, Italian, Independent Senator, Nick Xenophon, Brit via Cyprus, and Green Senator Larissa Waters, Canadian. So, Brandis says, in his opinion, they can all stay, except for Ludlam, who was born in New Zealand, and Roberts. He reckons they should have taken steps to check. Now, last week, Malcolm Roberts faced a lengthy cross-examination in the High Court, um, in part over former host of this podcast, Mark Stefano's excellent reporting, uncovering the documents that showed Roberts had signed a form saying he was a Brit on his way into Australia. Um, and I really, I really implore you, stop the podcast right now. We won't be offended. Go online and read the amazing cross-examination. It was just, <laughs> it was, it was a few good men. It's phenomenal. just incredible. Yeah. Uh, if Roberts and Ludlam go, how would we replace them? Well, uh, it would be in a recount. So for Ludlam, it would be the next person on the ticket. Um, now, if Larissa Waters is told she can stay, the Greens party is likely to be able to refill her seat with a Senate vacancy, which basically just means they could re-nominate her and she could just take her old job back. Um, but uh, it, it's the Malcolm Roberts refilling is really interesting. So if the p- next person on the One Nation ticket in Queensland is this guy called Fraser Anning. Now, did you know, Lane, that amongst some nerdy circles in Canberra, Malcolm Roberts has a nickname? Do you know what it is? No, I'm not part of these nerdy circles in Canberra. I don't know what it is. <laughs> okay, well, I am. Um, it's Mr. Yep. 77, <laughs> and that's because that's that's how many first preference votes he got at the last election. So 77 people uh, voted for you okay. over the line. Fraser Anning. Oh my God, that's such a Canberra burn. <laughs> Fraser Anning only got 19. So that means only 19 people <laughs> voted for him below the line. Oh my God. So, you okay. know, if he did come in, his nickname could be Mr. 19. Um, but mm. the ABC's mm. election expert, Anthony Green, he doubts anyone has ever been elected to Australian Parliament on less votes. 19. Um, to give you a background on who Fraser Anning is, he's a hotel owner, but Lane, because 
dual citizenship and Section 44 is the gift that keeps on giving, um, he's actually facing potential bankruptcy, which could also make him ineligible to be in the Senate. So, Oh, my God. (laughs) If he is is found to be ineligible, then technically One Nation could nominate Roberts in the vacancy to fill his own seat. Or it could go. Paul and Hanson's sister's name's been thrown out there. There's a whole bunch of different things that are happening. So mark it in your diary. Um, October 10 is when they're hitting the High Court, and it's just a, you know, it's just it's just a great time to be uh, a senator with a dual citizenship in Australia. I think. Number four is that this week around 50 asylum seekers from Nauru and Manus Island have been flown to the United States. So they're the first refugees to leave PNG, and more are expected to be transferred in the next few months. The front page of the Daily Telegraph on Wednesday said from Manus to Manhattan, but actually their first destination will be Los Angeles, and then the groups will be sent around to eight different states. We don't know the names of seven of those states, but we do know that they'll be going to Georgia, some of them. Mm. Now, although the Trump administration is going ahead with this refugee deal, which was struck by Barack Obama last year... President Trump apparently doesn't like it. Well, not apparently. I think it's been pretty clear that he doesn't like it. And the US don't want to publicise that they're doing it. So everything's happening in this pretty low-key fashion. So remember, this is the deal that Trump described in that leaked phone call transcript between him and Malcolm Turnbull as stupid and horrible. And the vetting process has been going on for a while. It's taken the refugees a while to go through the US's vetting. So as of July 31st, There were 1,298 people being held in Australia's immigration detention system, and that was down from 5,697 in 2012. Keep in mind that the Australian government says it's still going ahead with the closure of the Manus Island Detention Centre by October 31st, although an estimated 500 to 600 men remain inside. And Mm. Peter Dutton also had something to say on that this week, Alice. He basically was trying to say that, look look at these refugees, Life on Manus Island isn't as terrible as everyone makes it out to be and they can afford luxury Armani products. I very much doubt that that is the case. Um, But he, yeah, so he kind of made all these kind of ridiculous statements. Um, And, you know, some people uh, that I've spoken to in in the government are, are kind of saying, you know, Peter Dutton needs to be told to be put in his place. The Trump, the Trump administration is so volatile. We don't want to be offending them, um, because Trump also came out this week and said that he was going to cut the US's annual intake of um, back down to forty five thousand, which is the lowest that they've had in a decade. Which means that authorities are going to have to be prioritizing who who they want to accept under their humanitarian program. We want them to take another twelve hundred people. I don't know whether Peter Dutton making these kind of calls that. Um, you know, we've given them the wrong end of the stick by taking these rich refugees is really, really a smart idea. Yes. Okay. So what's number five, Alice? Okay. Number five, Lane. We all love a bit of budget mm-hmm. banter, a bit of budget bants. Yep. Yep. Uh, now, we've been hearing a lot over the last couple of years from the coalition government about how we're spending too much money. You know, Joe Hockey said when he was treasurer that the age of entitlement is over. Over. Well, good news, Lane. The Turnbull yep. government announced this week they have saved $4 billion from the budget deficit in the last year. Um, they spent Whoa. $2.5 billion less on social security and welfare payments than they'd estimated at the May budget. Now, the biggest saving mm. from this $4 billion comes from the disability sector. So they've spent $1.1 billion less on payment for services for disabled Australians between July 2016 and July 2017. And students got hit really badly. Students received $656 million less 
in Centrelink payments after the government's crackdown, which includes the repayments um, from the Centrelink robo-debt, uh, hashtag not my debt drama. Um, they also oh, okay. saved $250 million on immigration, including the running of offshore and onshore detention centres and aged care and payments to families with children and also just general admin is how they kind of saved the money. But um, okay. on the flip side of that, so we've got these budget savings that they've announced. But interestingly, on the flip side, there was also a report out this week from the Auditor General about Malcolm Turnbull's big innovation agenda. Now, do you remember when he became PM in 2015? One of the first things that he did uh, three months after he became Prime Minister was announce $1.1 billion for his innovation agenda. Um, So it was this, this kind of pool of money that was going to be spent trying to innovate the way that Australians did things. Um, yeah, is that is that where the whole agile meme comes from? Yes, it is. Well, the Auditor General put out a report that said that the whole innovation agenda and the $1.1 billion thrown at it was poorly designed and lacked evidence to support its claims about causing economic growth. And, Amazing. And you remember from the last election how bad uh, the innovation slogan went down. People mm-hmm. didn't. People don't like the word innovation. It doesn't resonate with voters because for younger voters, it's kind of a fluff word that means nothing. And for older voters, it means you're going to be losing your job. So um, it's unrelatable nonsense. And uh, hopefully we can stop talking about innovation and agility and all that kind of claptrap uh, in the next couple yeah. of weeks. Um, now, people uh, are probably thinking... Guys, you've gone a whole fast five without talking about the postal survey. How is that even possible? I know there are postal survey <laughs> stories out there. Well, uh, <laughs> we have decided that because we're going to be talking about this every week uh, until the result comes in and probably a couple of weeks after the result comes in. So that's until yeah. at least the end of November, if not forever. Oh, until the legislation mm-hmm. gets passed. It probably won't be till December or January. So we're going to be talking about it for a while. So, um, <laughs> If not forever. <laughs> Don't make me cry, Alice. <laughs> So we've decided to create a, a, a postal survey update section uh, and we've got this handy little intro. The controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. Now, Lane, this week uh, we reported that every leader and opposition leader from every state and territory have said they are voting yes except for one. So we're going to play a little game to see if you can guess who it is. Let's run through them. Queensland Labor Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Yes. Queensland Liberal Opposition Leader Tim Nichols. Yep. New South Wales Liberal Premier Gladys Berejiklian. She is a yes. New South Wales Labor Opposition Leader Luke Foley. Also a yes. A reluctant yes. Victorian Labor Premier Daniel Andrews. Yep, he's a yes. Okay, Victorian Liberal Opposition Leader Matthew Guy. I think he looks like uh, the Count from the Muppets. Oh, my God. Well, with that absolute sledge, I, I will confirm that he is voting yes. Okay, let's go Let's go far south. Tasmanian Liberal Premier Will Hodgman. Yes. Tasmanian Labor Opposition Leader Rebecca White. Yes. South Australian Labor Premier Jay Weatherall, who is also Penny Wong's ex-boyfriend. Great fact. He's a yes. Okay, what about the Liberal Opposition Leader in South Australia, Stephen Marshall? Also a yes. What about the Northern Territory Labor Chief Minister, Michael Gunner? Michael Gunner is a yes. How about the Northern Territory Liberal um, Opposition Leader, Gary Higgins? Gary Higgins, who has a gay son, is a yes. West Australian Labor Premier Mark McGowan. He's a yes. Okay, what about the opposition leader in WA, Mike Nahan? He's a yes. Okay, well, that leaves us with the ACT, where we have the first gay head of government in Australia, Labor Chief Minister Andrew Barr. I'm assuming he's a yes. He is a big yes. Okay, well, what about the ACT uh, Liberal opposition leader, Alastair Coe? He is a no. No for Coe. 
It's okay yeah, to say no. He's the only one. So he's the only one out of all the state and territory leaders. And of course, in, at the federal level, we've also got Malcolm Turnbull and, and Bill Shorten, who are, who are both big yeses. So of the 18 uh, government and opposition leaders across Australia, there's just one voting no, which is, a, I think, a pretty big statement about how much this issue has progressed in terms of political and, and community support. Um, okay, Fair Lane, enough. well, that we've got the wrap of what the leaders are doing and how they're voting. But I mean... What else have we missed in the postal survey in the last two weeks? Oh, well, there, there is a lot. Um, where should I start? Yesterday, we got to see the reasons for the High Court decision allowing the postal survey to go ahead. Now, I know that ship has very much <laughs> sailed and we're in postal survey territory now and it's actually happening. But as you know, and as I'm sure our listeners know, I'm a big nerd. So I was really looking forward to this day. And you um, called me a nerd earlier for liking numbers. mm <laughs> Basically, this was the the High Court explaining why they gave the Postal Survey the green light. There wasn't that much in it that was radical or surprising. There was one line that I really loved. The High Court ruled that it is irrelevant as to whether you call it a vote or a plebiscite or a survey. They said that none of that matters in a legal sense. And the only thing that does matter is whether the ABS is collecting statistical information. And the High Court found that your opinions about other people's marriages do count as statistical information. Whoa. So there you go. Good times. Other than that... Does that uh, mean I'm allowed found... to weigh in on every single person's marriage now and just say, well, it's just statistics? <laughs> well, yeah, you know you know what else? You were allowed to do that before the High Court <laughs> weighed in. So yeah. Why am I letting this stop me? My gosh, okay. <laughs> but now, now, it's just, now it's just official. So the other things, it, you know, the High Court found that the expenditure was constitutional, that Matthias Cormann had acted appropriately, that the AEC is totally within its rights to send out survey forms to silent electors, basically just knocked over the challenges and then said that the, the arguments were so demonstrably without substance that they didn't even have to address the issue of whether the case was allowed to be brought at all. So there you go. Um, but Alice, in other news... Did you get a, a text this week? Say a, an unsolicited text? <laughs> you know I did. And we were in Auckland and it was election <laughs> night as we were leaving the Labor election night party at midnight in Auckland. Yeah. And I got this text and I'm like, what is this? How, <laughs> how dare they get my phone, my phone number, my personal phone number? Yeah, 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 I got the your text. personal phone number. <laughs> so I also got but the you know, text, but Alice. Lane, I did not get yeah. the Medi-Scare text. Um, but I did get this. I text. didn't get the Medicare so, text either. Yeah. So these texts were sent out by the Yes campaign. I got mine on Saturday. Did I get mine on Saturday? Yeah. So I got mine on Saturday. They were sent out to millions of Australians and, and subsequently caused a bit of outrage online, you know, just for a change. People were wondering how the Yes campaign got their numbers. And the Yes campaign said it was via a random number generator and that they didn't actually collect anyone's numbers or invade anyone's privacy. They just sent out a big hit of text to a random list. And so many people got them. So since this kind of outrage started, there's been like a counter outrage. There's been a lot of great memes about unsolicited texts. Some of my favourites are people tweeting pictures of texts that they've received from, you know, Jetstar or a shop that they've shopped at or, or a company that they signed up with saying, well, now that I've got this unsolicited text, I'm going to boycott this organisation. <laughs> um, and there was also this really great meme that was like a kind of memorial plaque type thing. And on it, it said, I survived the marriage equality text 2017. <laughs> Um, but since Textgate really kicked off <laughs> yesterday, we saw Corey Bernardi Textgate. announce oh that he's God. going to. <laughs> oh 
I've lost it. I love it. Okay, yep. Textgate. Yeah, like I said, I thought Textgate was the dumbest thing to happen this week and then Macklemore kicked off. So, you know, all bets are off the table, Alice. But, Alice, tell me about what Corey Bernardi is planning to do. It's kind of like texting, but it's not. Calling? (laughs) Calling? Is that what it is? (laughs) Okay, this is so funny. So, Corey Bernardi is planning to robocall a million homes in Victoria and South Australia um, and robocall means it's it's a pre-recorded call. So uh, whoever picks up or if it's an answering machine, it just plays the message. Changing the Marriage Act will limit the right of parents to object to radical gay sex education and gender ideology programs from being taught in schools. Corey Bernardi is calling it market research, but it's kind of like push polling really because, A, who has a landline phone? No one I know. So he's targeting older people and maybe, you know, maybe younger families, so people with kids, right, um, who maybe are soft, uh, soft no's or soft yeses that he can, he can transfer that into hard no's. But, I mean, will a phone call actually make people return their survey on? And no, that's a, bit, that's a bit iffy to me. But he did say, and I thought this is quite a weird statement, right, he came out really strong against the text message, calling them an invasion of privacy, saying, oh, any 12-year-old could have gotten a text message, which, yeah, sure, that's true. But any 12-year-old could pick up a phone in their home and get this robocall as well. But he just he he genuinely thinks, Lane, that receiving a pre-recorded phone call telling people to vote no is less intrusive than getting a text message. He thinks that getting a text he message does. is invasive. Well, he said he said that he thinks a call is less intrusive than a text, and I was very surprised to hear that because there's it, you know it's it's almost a meme among millennials that they hate to to call people mm. that they much prefer to text to to WhatsApp to Telegram to you know Snapchat whatever the kids are using these days mm. they prefer to do that rather than actually pick up the phone and call someone. Okay, so texts and calls and, and invasions of privacy aside, we have also seen heaps and heaps of ugly debate in the past week. So we all know that Tony Abbott was allegedly headbutted by an anarchist DJ who said the incident had nothing to do with same-sex marriage last week, but that didn't stop Abbott using the incident to push the no campaign. And then we also had protesters crashing the no launch in Melbourne over the weekend and holding up a banner saying, burn churches, not queers. And then on Monday, we had multiple reports of violence and vandalism against LGBTI people and yes campaigners. A house in Brisbane with yes signs up had rocks thrown through its windows. Nazi graffiti was painted onto rainbow flags. And a transgender teenager was allegedly assaulted in Hobart last Friday. I interviewed the teen this week. She is 16. And she told me that she feels much less safe in the politically charged atmosphere of the postal survey. But the Tony Abbott headbutt and other violence aside. Some of the other members of the Abbott family have been in the news this week, haven't they, Alice? Yeah, that's right. So one of his daughters, Frances Abbott, um, who incidentally, if you want to stalk her online, is is a personal trainer and has uh, a very interesting Instagram account. Um, she appeared in a video for the Yes campaign talking about um, how she supports marriage equality. She also talked about uh, her auntie Chris, who of course is Tony Abbott's sister, Christine Foster, who is a Liberal councillor for Sydney, but also one of the most prominent members of the Yes camp. Um, so, uh, you know, the Batuta Advocate, um, which is a a satirical paper in Australia had a very funny headline this week, uh, which was Tony <laughs> Abbott determined to tear his pa- family apart over, over marriage equality, which I thought was quite. You know, I thought it was really interesting that Francis Abbott chose to do this because you don't. We've never really heard much from the Abbott children. Um, they, you know, they were on the campaign trail with him. Um, remember the night that he became prime minister, and they were wearing all that matching white 
He's got three daughters and they're all wearing matching white kind of Charlie's Angel style outfits. Yeah, I other, do remember that. And then other than that video that he made, uh, which I played on the podcast before, when because Big Brother, this, when 2013 Big Brother was still on TV and they made those videos and, you know, they were, he, he was in the video with his daughters saying, oh, you know, vote for me, I'm the guy with the good looking daughters, right? Other than that, we, haven't, we don't really hear much from the Abbott kids. So I thought it was really quite an interesting thing that she chose to come out so publicly against her father, who is such um, one of the main features of the no camp and say that she is voting yes and everyone should vote yes. Speaking of Batuta advocate headlines, Alice, there was also a very funny one this week, which was straight man finds way to casually bring up his yes vote in front of gay colleague. (laughs) (laughs) I just lost my mind when I read it. Um, But what else? What else? So there was also a story I wrote this week about the Statistical Society of Australia, which put out a media release absolutely slamming the postal survey. It was like a a battle of the statisticians. They said in its professional view, a simple opinion poll would be better than the postal survey at actually gauging the views of Australians, which is pretty funny because we have had countless polls on this since the mid-2000s. And Alice... Alice, let us just quickly return to the latest scandal in the postal survey debate that has captured the nation for the past, I think we're at 48 hours now. Oh, gosh, Lane. Okay, all right. Well, we we talked about it a bit before, but uh, it involves the American rapper by the name of Macklemore. He is set to perform at the NRL Grand Final this week, which he interestingly described as like the Australian Super Bowl, which I think is over-egging it a little. I don't think the nation rallies (laughs) behind the NRL Grand Final, which is on a Sunday night. Uh, well, it's because it's we're divided in codes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different sport played in Australia. But yeah. It, so it, it's grand final. It's a long weekend this weekend. Grand final, long weekend. So we've got the AFL grand final and the NRL grand final. Um, NRL is rugby league. Uh, and the teams that are playing are the North Queensland Cowboys and the Melbourne Storm. Um, but, I mean, Melbourne Storm are all based, up, based out of Queenslanders. So it's like a Queensland v Queensland comp. So no one else around the country cares, right? Um, and look, so Macklemore uh, has been booked to perform at this... Uh, Australian Super Bowl, if you want to call it that, for months, and no one really cared uh, except for Alan Jones, uh, Shock Jock, 2GB Shock Jock Alan Jones, who, when it was announced that Macklemore was performing a few months ago, questioned whether he was a good choice, uh, which led to <laughs> one of the greatest tweets ever, which went like this, Alan Jones' tweet, some American rapper named Macklemore will perform at the NRL Grand Final. How much is he being paid? Is this a wise allocation of funds? To which Rick Morton from The Australian replied, it was 99 cents, which is, of course, a reference to the smash hit Thrift Shop. Oh, so good. So good. Anyway, so it was all fine until people realised that Macklemore would be singing his uh, number one hit, Same Love, which is about gay rights and discrimination. Interesting to note, Same Love went to number one in Australia and nowhere else around the world. It went to 11 in the US chart. So it was a big song when it came out in Australia. It was huge. And also, after all this, is now currently back at number ones on the iTunes list, which is really funny. <laughs> um, so so yes. anyway, so Macklemore's going to be singing uh, Same Love. People realise that this week. Uh, a former NRL player started a petition that has now had thousands of signatures saying that the song will make him and his wife and his five children uncomfortable watching the NRL Grand Final. And the NRL should not be supporting marriage equality. Tony Abbott jumped into the debate and said that we should keep politics out of sport which is ironic given his history with sport. Um, and now it's turned into this big debate, uh, which for some reason led to Cory Bernardi telling Sky News how much he loves the pop singer Pink. Pink, who's one of my favourite artists, I think she's a wonderfully talented uh, uh, singer, 
released a song, you know, condemning George Bush, and I didn't much like that at the time either, but I didn't think it should be banned from radio. And Macklemore has got some, uh, some good songs. He's got one of them which made in the top ten, which, you know, doesn't sit well with me politically, but I'm not sure this was meant to be a political statement. I think it was meant to be more about just entertainment, and he's had... You know, a few mega big hits and, uh, you know, I'll enjoy three of the four of them. I just love the idea that all these politicians have to be now informed about, A, who Macklemore is and what the songs are because everyone, every politician that has been interviewed in the last 24 hours have been asked about it. And you know what? Good on the NRL for really backing this in and saying, yes, of course, he's going to perform that song. It's one of his greatest songs. But also they've kind of used it to lean into the yes debate and a lot, most of the sporting codes of Australia have come out uh, in support of the yes camp, um, which is uh, which is which is you know really interesting, uh, because I think that everyone has agreed that maybe sport and politics do go together. Like, um, now this is a very strange note that you've written in here to, for me to ask you, Lane. I understand. <laughs> don't say that. I don't even know how to read this. At the read this sentence, Lane. Lane, I understand you will be at the NRL grand final. That is right, Alice. So my partner has snagged us some free tickets. So I will actually be there to see how this controversial live performance of Same Love goes down. I might even record some of it, just record a bit of the the audience reaction oh, for the podcast. Do. And do. I will tell all of you about it next week. Oh my um, gosh. Okay, is that is that everything? We have uh, the postal survey? I think just, that actually might be everything. No, 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 just one more thing. So the Bureau of Statistics mm-hmm. has announced that it's going to publish a weekly estimate of the running total of um, the number of postal surveys that have been returned starting next Tuesday. So every Tuesday they'll uh, put up on their website the number that have been returned as of 5 o'clock that day. They say it's meant to be a way to promote awareness of the poll um, because, you know, as we know, statistically, people, if they don't vote within a day or so of getting it, then they probably won't send it back. But, you know, Lane, you know what it also is? A way to keep the postal survey in the news every week. That is true. Because we weren't talking about it already. All right, okay, I think that is definitely now everything. Let's go to our interview lane. Who did you sit down with this week? So as we mentioned earlier, we had such a great time in New Zealand last week and then came back to Australia's ridiculous postal survey. So I thought it was high time Australia got a bit of a history lesson, not not too long ago. We're just going back to 2013, but to look at how their Kiwi neighbours dealt with the issue. So I sat down with Louisa Wall, the Labor politician who introduced the bill that made same-sex marriage legal in New Zealand in 2013. Here she is. <laughs> Louise Wall, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, asking to talk to me, Lane. You introduced the bill that saw marriage equality mm. being legalised in New Zealand. It's been about four years since that happened? Yes. Yep. How do you look back on that achievement four years later? Oh, I actually think that for New Zealand at that time, we joined what was a global conversation. Um, Barack Obama... Uh, had made it a pivotal election issue for himself um, in 2012, uh, and it was a real. It was actually a graphically defining contrast between him and Mitt Romney, and he'd actually changed his position, and it seemed to have been influenced by his two teenage daughters, uh, and having you know classmates who had same-sex parents. Um, and then you had the Conservative uh, Republican who was completely against it. And then we had conversations happening in France and in the UK. And so it was appropriate that New Zealand joined that conversation. And so, you know, it's a bit like sport, timing is everything. So I had an opportunity to write a blog and uh, then through my Labour caucus um, had a bill that was progressed through our caucus and I, it enabled me to put a bill on the ballot. So we 
basically joined a global conversation, then had a very local conversation um, about the role of the state in marriage. And actually, the only role that the state has is licensing the celebrants and uh, giving a marriage license to two consenting adults that meet our criteria. You pay $122.60, and that's the end of the state's role. Who you marry, how you marry, where you marry has got nothing to do with the state. And so I think we were really clear that the state was discriminating against its citizens, and so in challenging the state, uh, and I guess what a modern democracy actually looks like and means in terms of equal citizenship, we were able to, um, on one hand, say this is about freedom from discrimination perpetrated by the state, but at the same time saying that we also, and I also believe in freedom of religion, and we, because we have uh, a, a separation of church and state in New Zealand, we're really um, clearly able to say this is just about the marriage licence and if you're a religious organisation, you can continue to believe your definition of marriage, but actually uh, the state has to respect uh, the churches and their institutions and the churches and their institutions have to respect the state. Yeah. And every other citizen in New Zealand who's equally uh, entitled to their view and definition of marriage. In terms of religious freedom and, and things like that, at the mm. moment in Australia, there's a really fiery debate raging. All sorts of things are getting tossed mm. up, including, um, you know, fears about religious freedom, about what kids are going to be taught in schools. Was mm. a similar kind of ugly debate occurring in New Zealand? And did it? how was that for you as a lesbian MP navigating that? Uh, there was um, a, a group that mobilised against uh, marriage equality in New Zealand, led by the Conservative Party, um, a man called Colin Craig, who used it as a political platform, uh, by Family First, who I believe Bob McCroskey's been over to Australia and he's trying to influence what's happening over there, mm -hmm. and by the Catholic Church. Um, but we were really clear that we weren't going to do anything that infringed the rights of religious organisations to define what marriage meant for them. Already in our legislation, Section 29, um, if you are a celebrant, we have two types, organisational. The organisational celebrants are empowered by our Registrar-General through uh, a list of churches that have been recognised in New Zealand, and so the Anglican Church gets to submit a list of ministers and then they're empowered to be celebrants. And then we have individual celebrants. And so um, the preservation of freedom of religion, and I guess the balancing in our legislative framework between uh, the Bill of Rights and the Human Rights Act, we were able to do that really simply and clearly. So if you were a minister and you didn't want to marry a same-sex couple, that you were able to do that, and, and there was nothing wrong with that. So what we were really calling for was respect and tolerance and... Um, it did get nasty, and I'm not saying I didn't get hate mail and people telling me I was going to go to hell and that I'd caused uh, earthquakes and a whole lot of droughts. And, um, Powerful. I wish, yeah, I know. It's quite interesting that mm. they think that as a lesbian woman I had so much power. But um, it, it, was a, it was a really constructive discussion, though, because what did happen was we had... 21,533 submissions, like the largest number of submissions we've ever had. But yeah, wow, that's young a lot. people, young people actually 
started having conversations at school. So mm -hmm. there were big school assemblies, they had debates, uh, they were writing to their MPs, they were writing submissions. Um, and I remember it really vividly because a poll came out and um, basically all the universities, over 80% support for marriage equality, but if you were over 65, then you know the support was almost the other way around. And we said, well, that makes sense. I mean, we've only had homosexual law reform since 1986. So for a lot of the older generation, they grew up uh, where homosexual, homosexuality was a crime. Yeah. And so I encouraged young people to talk to their grandparents, not necessarily their parents, but their grandparents. And I think it was that generational divide that helped shift the discussion and, and so we saw more people mobilising for marriage equality, lobbying their local MP, talking to their local MP, and we made the environment okay for Conservative MPs because we had 27 of the, our National Party, which is an equivalent to your Liberal Party, yep. vote in favour of the bill. And um, it was incredibly satisfying. And then in my political party, I had four of my male colleagues uh, all for religious reasons, not support marriage equality. But um, the discussion on the whole was incredibly collegial because what we started talking about was our kids, uh, our families, um, what it says to young people about being gay, um, and actually what do we want for anyone in life. And I um, think we got to a point where finding that, that one person that you want to commit yourself to formally is really special and actually that is part of the meaning of life so that you've got someone to journey on your life with you but also that that is family two people coming together formally is family and you add to your family by having children and so children don't make a family children add to a family and so I think we got some of those principles right and communicated that right and that, as I said, that fine balance between freedom from discrimination and freedom of religion and yep. saying they're both valid. And actually, it was all theoretical anyway, because as a lesbian couple or a gay couple, who's going to want to go to a minister that doesn't believe in your marriage and force them to marry you? I mean, marriage is a celebration and it's about families coming together and it's about positive aspects and, you know, people being... Um, jolly and having a good time so having you know the theoretical argument about forcing these priests to marry you when they don't agree with it was just not reality yeah okay yeah. well that certainly sounds <laughs> like it was a lot more constructive than the current debate that's happening in Australia which is yeah. really centering on a, a lot of that kind of stuff um, yeah. I'm interested in what your I suppose what your advice would be both to the Australian government in terms of just dealing with this issue and then also maybe to um, LGBT Australians who are currently kind of watching this play out and feeling a bit overwhelmed and a bit down? Yeah, um, I mean, the, I, I've seen the research swimming with sharks. So this is post-Ireland's um, constitutional referendum. Mm. Um, and one of the statistics that's particularly stuck in my mind was that after the fact, 56% um, of... Uh, Irish people said it was such a bad negative experience that 36% of them said they weren't sure it was worth it because of the anxiety, because of the fear, because of the sense of you know self-loathing, um, self-harm, depression, suicidal 
thoughts, and I've noted that you've already had a 40% increase um, in some of your services, and particularly for LGBT youth. Yeah. Um, but youth really are the key. They are the key because this legislation is about the future. It's not about the past. And I believe that's where we were able to break down the divide, the generational divide. And grandparents started looking at their grandchildren and saying, actually, I want for my grandchild what I want for all young people. And I want them to find that person and to get married and, you know, have a home and have a good life and have children. And um, the fact that they're a same-sex couple, I want the same things for them. So it became very real and uh, very much about reality as opposed to the theory of it all. Um, but I do have to say that the Liberal Party is basically just completely fractured. Um, and you did have another step in there that we didn't institute. So in 2004, when John Howard... Uh, essentially replicated what the Americans had done and you brought in a Defensive Marriage Act for all intents and purposes and defined marriage between a man and a woman uh, for life. Um, I, I do. We didn't have that legislation go through New Zealand. Uh, it was defeated uh, and we were in government at that time and it was interesting because we have what um, you call a Section 7 Human or Bill of Rights test and a Human Rights test and essentially it said it breached human rights to limit um, that definition. Right. What, because what year would, was that? That, 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 was, uh, that was in 2000, because our, our civil unions went through in 2004, um, and Gordon Copeland, who was a member of uh, the Christian Heritage Party, tried to pass that in 2006. Okay, yeah. So we didn't have that step, mm -hmm. um, and it could have made things a bit more difficult. But the interesting thing, if I look back at civil unions, is civil unions was designed to address the issue of same-sex relationships, but in fact we didn't limit um, heterosexual couples from having a civil union because that would have breached their human rights. We would have been discriminating against them. Right, yeah. So it's quite interesting. Mm. But where do I see Australia? I just hope that Australia overwhelmingly vote yes and what I've loved seeing is the NRL, uh, Australian rugby. Um, I hope netballs come out and cricket and soccer. And everyone's saying, actually, this is about diversity and inclusion. For us, we open our sport to everybody. And limiting, um, as I've said before, the ability of your government to give a licence to two consenting adults who want to formalise their relationship in a modern democracy is actually quite ridiculous. Mm. So all the scaremongering that I've seen from your uh, Catholic uh, bishops and archbishops predominantly and John Howard and Tony Abbott, it's so yesterday. It's not the future. And it actually doesn't put young people at the centre of decision-making, which is why I'm perplexed given the abuse perpetrated by your Catholic Church on young people and the sexual abuse of your children. And they're, they're taking the moral high ground. I just can't understand why they haven't been told to not lead the no campaign. Where they don't have any moral authority. How can you, when your institution, over 70 years, actively covered up all the sexual abuse of children and the process that they're leading is affecting all the all the young people, LGBT young people. 
it's just disgusting. And I wish you'd talk about it and say to them, if you want to be a moral crusader, why don't you eliminate child sexual abuse and be a leader in that, hmm. not against human rights, and especially in a process where young Australians are being so adversely affected. So I'm hoping that this all that I'm having this conversation, is another platform to challenge them because I find it absolutely appalling that they've come out and been so vigorous in their opposition. And they did that to a degree here, but uh, from what I've seen, um, some of the consequences, however, I don't agree with. Um, I think people who have got an, a position and an opinion and will vote a certain way, it shouldn't limit their um, work ability. I've seen the story of the young 18-year-old um, who <clears throat> is a Christian young woman. She's an entertainer. She said no, and the person who she worked for then fired her. I don't think that's right. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, we had 77 MPs vote for, 44 vote against. But you would have seen after, there were a lot of people who came to say congratulations, even though they voted against the bill. And they did that for various reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I know members of our, part, of our um, house who, because they were, and I'll give an example, a woman called Melissa Lee, Korean representative, her Korean community absolutely against it. She personally supports it. She worked in the broadcasting area. She's a journalist. Really um, tolerant, but, you know, she's there as a spokesperson for a specific ethnic community. So she had to decide, am I voting for myself or am I going to actually represent what my community are telling me that they want? So she voted against the bill um, and subsequently has come to some pride events and our community are incredibly unforgiving because they've kind of said she's a bit of a hypocrite. Like, you can't vote against us, but come to our pride parades. But it's all valid. I mean, yeah. all those points of view are valid. But um, we have really clear uh, human rights legislation, and you can't discriminate. So people who are discriminating based on people's personal opinions, I don't agree with it either way. And I, I saw a story the other day, a candidate for the Maori Party is saying don't vote Labor over the party's support for euthanasia. Um, in the same media release, um, the person had a go at Labor for legalising same-sex marriage and said that it was against Christian Pacific cultural values. What do you make of that kind of tension when it comes to Pacific communities and, and Christian identity and these contentious social issues? Oh, it's the story of our uh, colonial history. Um, we weren't colonised by... Uh, England only, we were colonised by Christianity. Um, I, I love uh, Bob Marley's songs, um, the Redemption songs is one of my kind of favourite songs, but there's a line in there that says, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our mind. Now, Christianity, for all intents and purposes, has um, colonised our minds. And if I look at our indigenous cultures, if I look at my Māori culture, we have a term for us called takatapui. And takatapui were two spirits. Uh, that's the kind of framing um, in uh, Canada and in the US. And our indigenous languages, our indigenous languages and cultures um, reinforce that we are valid, that we are valued, that we have a status and a position that has only been changed through colonisation and, and Christianity, which is an imposition on our Indigenous identity. And so you have to be able to 
be critical of your history. You have, so to be critical of your history, you have to know your history. And then you have to be in a position where you can apply some critical analysis and understand why and how um, people end up believing some of the things they believe. And again, we made it about um, members of our own families who are takatāpoi and, and actually what do we want for all of us? And we want everybody to be happy yeah. and to know who they are, be proud of who they are. Um, and not feel bad about who we are because it's that feeling of isolation, of um, not being accepted, of having an identity that um, is stigmatised and demonised if it's a Christian analysis, which actually has contributed, I believe, to our high rates of suicide. So um, I, I understand and appreciate some of those perspectives, um, but obviously... Uh, when you look at it from a democratic perspective and a social justice perspective and a citizen's perspective, that's why I believe you do have to separate out the role of the state and citizens electing a government with churches and religions and their beliefs and values uh, that sometimes are hugely incongruent um, yeah, with the state's role. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I like the woman, I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. So that was Louisa Wall talking to me in her electorate office in South Auckland. And that's about all we have time for this week. But before we go, I do want to give a shout out to a new podcast that's joined the BuzzFeed family. It's called Pretty for an Aboriginal. And it's hosted by two absolute legends, Nakia Louie and Miranda Tapsell. So you should definitely check it out on your podcast app. Yeah, absolutely subscribe to it and download it. They have had, they've done, I think, three episodes now. And they've they've had some amazing guests and really, really interesting topics. It's unlike, I think, any other podcast that exists in the world. Um... Uh, now, look, that's all we have got time for because Lane uh, told me last week that she hates bin juice, um, which, of course, was Mark's favourite segment, bin juice. He raved about it. He loved he loved the bin. He loved oh. the juices. Lane hates bin juice. Um, as I, I never have... understood why Mark liked it so much. <laughs> well. Sorry, Mark. I really think you were wrong on that one. <laughs> we're really learning a lot about Lane in this podcast. Uh, so Lane hates it, so <laughs> we're, 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 we're going to figure out a way to change it. To make her oh, hate it less. Yeah, look, we don't, don't have, we don't have to cut it. I, I just think it could do with improving. Let's just anyway. act, well, let's ax every 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 different segment that we have, and we'll just come up with a clean slate next week. We should have done it at the start of season two, <laughs> but maybe we'll wait until halfway through season two to do it. Um, okay, yeah. I want to say a big thank you to our amazing producer Nicholas Ray. Now I'm going to embarrass Nick because. He got recognised nonstop when we were in New Zealand. We could not walk down the streets of Auckland without people like pointing him out and wanting selfies with him. It was <laughs> amazing, and he he He's is so shy. He is so shy. Yeah. It was um it was really funny. And I also wanted to give a shout out to all the Kiwis that I met who listened to the podcast, especially Jack, Jack, my friend from Twitter. Now, uh, he was really cool. Um. So I also want to say thank you to Louise Wall for taking time out of her campaigning to speak to us while we're in New Zealand. Also, a big thank you to Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey and Richard James, Peter Holmes and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode for the microphones and supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and leave a rating and a review. We'll be back next week with another episode. Um, But also, of course, we want you guys to get involved. So uh, hit us up. Um, I always read everything that everyone writes to me on Twitter. 
Uh, and you guys, do I. you guys throw in some really good suggestions and also some excellent gallery whispers. Uh, so I'm at Workman Alice. She's at Lane Sainty. And uh, finally, I think there's one more question and then we're done. One more question. There's always the, the final question. Alice, is it on? Okay, great question. Is it on? <laughs> it- great question that you've just spontaneously <laughs> come up with. You know where it is online? Where? In Victoria in the Greens. So the head of the Victorian <laughs> Greens, Greg Barber, stood down yeah. yesterday on Thursday as the as a state MLC. Um, so uh, they're going to come up with a new leader. They don't have one yet. They could have one by the time you're listening to this. Um, Samantha Ratnam, who uh, she ran it for the federal election of Will's uh, last federal election, which of course was won by Peter Khalil. Um, but okay. yeah, so the seven-member Greens party room uh, have to elect a new leader. And as, as of time of recording... There are now there are no candidates. There are no candidates, so we don't even know who is likely um, who is likely to, to go for it because uh, uh, Colleen Hartland, who was the other kind of prominent Greens in Victoria, she's retiring at the next election. So we just don't yeah. know, Lane. We just don't know. And there's well, so there's actually a lot of interesting stuff happening in Victorian state politics because they are having a by election at the moment, and it's really it's in um, it's in uh, North Melbourne, so it's in in Northcote in the kind of Brunswick Northcote area. And it's a really, it's going to be a big fight for Labor and the Greens. So whilst you might be thinking, oh, I don't care about state politics, it will have federal politics uh, ramifications, what happens in this by-election. So it is going to be an interesting one to watch. But, Lane, enjoy the football grand final you're going to this weekend. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. We're going to get a beer, get some hot chips. It'll, it'll be great. But record, but record some, do some voxes of the people around you. Get a gauge on how people feel about the Mac... Mackle Maury, the rapper. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll 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 do some voxies if if the if the atmosphere is right for voxies. <laughs> if everyone around me is kind of booing, I probably won't go up and be like, "Hey, I'm an LGBT reporter with Buzzfeed." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'll play by you. I'll play okay. by you. All right. Um, Thanks yeah. so much for listening, guys. Enjoy Thank your you, long everyone. weekend. Bye. Bye.